Good morning, everyone. Really good to be here. Really good to have you all in the room. And really great that you could join us uh, online, if that's how you're joining us today. Um, yeah, welcome. My name's Ludo. I'm on the team here. Uh, and as Matt said, I get the privilege today of uh, sharing from God's Word with you uh, as we continue on in our series in Ecclesiastes. We live in a world uh, and a culture where we're very strongly encouraged to express ourselves, to make our voice heard, and to, to make our mark. We basically want to be the one talking, want to be the one saying and doing important things. Uh, we want to make things happen, and we want to impress upon other people uh, our way of seeing things, our views. We want to be influencers, not necessarily uh, in the way that we understand it in a, in a social media context, although I would include that. Uh, but in a general sense, we want to influence. We want to express ourselves and be heard. We're generally much slower to listen than we are to speak. And that way of being, that way of uh, interacting with the world around us uh, is celebrated in our world in all kinds of different ways. We do see it in social media, like I said, which is basically driven by uh, wanting to draw attention to uh, the things that you have to say and wanting to be relevant and express your views. Uh, and I've also seen it in work meetings. Uh, I am originally a Dutchman, but I grew up in Australia, as you might be able to hear, so I don't have all of the uh, Dutch cultural background. And when I first moved to the Netherlands, uh, I was on a project for work, doing my best to be a good team member. Uh, and at some point I was actually criticized, I think it was in my second week, I was criticized for not contributing uh, enough. And it turned out that the reason was that I wasn't contributing my opinion on every topic that was being discussed by the team. Uh, so in that context as well, there was greater value given to speaking than there was uh, to listening and learning. And what this results in uh, is that we are bombarded with a huge range of different messages uh, that are being preached to us because people worship many different things in the world many of which ultimately come down to uh, worship of ourselves. And this isn't only a feature of our current culture. Uh, it's been around forever. I think it's always been like this. People have always been seeking to have their voice heard. They've always worshipped many different things, and they've always liked the idea of having influence. Uh, and the passage we're looking at today from Ecclesiastes 5 shows us this, that this was definitely relevant in the time that Ecclesiastes was written. And I actually think it's almost hardwired into us as humans that we want to influence and express ourselves. And of course, uh, that speaking is not all negative. We speak to do many great things. We speak to share joy. We speak to share knowledge. We speak to encourage others. Um, and so, yes, speaking can be wonderful and life-giving to the hearer. But I wonder if you've ever been uh, in a conversation where you can just hear that the other person isn't listening, or the only reason they're listening is to kind of decide what the next thing is that they're going to say. That can be that is frustrating at any time, but especially so if you're kind of more knowledgeable on that topic than, than the other person. Um, so that is actually the way that I think it tends to go. We tend to speak without listening well. Uh, so then it's no wonder that we might bring that same attitude into how we approach God in worship. 
if our default mode uh, in inter interacting with the world is speaking without listening, then it may well be our default mode towards God as well. And so with that in mind, uh, let's look at today's passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 7. And so far in Ecclesiastes, we've heard uh, the preacher, the sort of main voice in the book, speaking about different ways in which life is ultimately a vapor, a chasing after the wind. And it continues in that same vein after this passage as well. But in, in amongst all of this, uh, we get these verses which speak to a very important question. How should we approach God? And what is uh, the right way to approach one who is so worthy of worship? So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's read together. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So I want you to ask yourself that question uh, that I just posed. How do you approach God? What is the intent of your heart when you approach him? Do you mainly come to listen to him? Do you mainly come to speak to him? Do you mainly come to plead with him or tell him what to do? Or do you come to him to feel a certain way, to have a certain experience? How would you describe that posture of your heart when you approach God? The very first thing that this passage says uh, is to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. What does that mean? In answering that question, I think it's really helpful uh, to look at other parts of Scripture which use the metaphor of steps or walking. And what we see is that all throughout Scripture, uh, walking and stepping are used as metaphors for how we live. For example, in uh, Galatians 5.16, where the Apostle Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, we are being told there to live according to the Holy Spirit's guidance and to live uh, with the power that he supplies. And so here, uh, when it says guard your steps, it's saying guard your life. Or guard your life and your heart as you approach God. Uh, so keep a close watch on how you're living and what's going on in your, on, on in your heart. Is, it, uh, is your heart set on God or is it set on other things? And I think this instruction tells us a lot about our position before God, doesn't it? And the fact that we're instructed to uh, have a certain guardedness in our steps, to watch our lives uh, and our hearts as we approach God, it tells us that 
God is one to be revered. There's a level of uh, care that has to be taken. We mustn't come before him flippantly or irreverently. Um, and, and he is, it, it shows us that he is greater than we are. And in fact, he is infinitely greater than we can imagine. Uh, and don't get me wrong, he's not a tyrant. Absolutely not. God is love. God is our loving father. But at the same time, he is also infinitely great and just. So how should we approach God? Well, the first thing this passage tells us is humbly and with reverence. Yet at the same time, we're told in verse 1 uh, also to draw near. It says that to draw near uh, is, sorry, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Uh, so while we are told to relate to God reverently, we're also told to draw near to him. And maybe if, when you think of a relationship in which there is sort of reverence and esteem, uh, you assume a certain distance in that relationship. It feels far off. Uh, but with God, it isn't like that. He's not like anyone else. This can be hard for us to reconcile, I think. We have a fairly clear category in our minds for those people who we esteem and that feels distant. And we have a clear category in our minds for people who we are uh, relationally intimate with. But they sort of don't uh, come at both at the same time. But with God, there is that tension between reverence and also intimacy. The fact that we're encouraged to draw near to our great God, um, to, to listen closely to him and to know him, shows us a great truth. It shows us that we can draw near. He is not distant. And why does he want us to draw near? He wants us to draw near so that we can hear his voice. He wants us to relate to him personally, like children to their father. He wants to speak to us and shape us uh, because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And when you think about it, listening actually goes hand in hand with reverence. I mean, who do you listen to in a human sense? You listen to uh, the people who you feel are worthy of your attention, who have something valuable to say and who you want to either be shaped by or get to know more deeply. And so who we listen to indicates who we esteem, who we hold in high regard. And if we approach God with that heart posture of listening to him, listening to his voice, then we're expressing that he is the one uh, who we want to be shaped by and who we think is supremely worth knowing. But is God uh, really worth listening to? You might be thinking, it's all good and well that uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes thinks it's good to draw near and listen to God, but is that really true? How does, uh, how does listening to God benefit me? I mean, there are plenty of other voices out there that I could be uh, listening to, that I could be shaped by, which, are, uh, which at least seem compelling or maybe at least interesting. Um, but I want to say that God is supremely worthy of being listened to. Listening to God will do you good. So before we get into how we listen to God, let's just pause and think about that for a moment. Why is God worth listening to? Well, firstly, God speaks truth. In fact, he is the truth. Jesus says uh, in John that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And many passages of Scripture tell us uh, that God never lies. And if God is all-knowing and never lies, 
then everything he says is the truth. So if we're interested in truth, which I think most of us are, then uh, God, God is the one to listen to. Secondly, uh, God loves us more than we can imagine. Scripture is full of God's expressions of his love for us. Romans 8 says that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he loves us with an intensity and a steadfastness that we can't get our heads around. So anything he says to us is not only true, it is also said to us out of that love. And thirdly, God is our creator. So he made us and he knows what is good for us, better than we know what's good for us. Uh, and so he also, we also see in scripture that he wants what's good for us. Romans 8 again tells us that God works all things for the ultimate good of those who love him. Uh, which above all else is that we become more like Jesus. Or as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if we as people know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in heaven give good things uh, to his children? So in short, God knows what's good for us and he also wants what's good for us. So anything he says to us will bring us good and not evil. And God is also infinitely wise. In Romans 11, Paul exclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And we have access to this awe-inspiring, wise God. Have you ever been in the presence of someone you find truly awe-inspiring? People will... Uh, pay good money to see a speaker who they think is inspirational, who, who fills them with awe, uh, yet we don't seem to respond to God in the same way. As humans, we like to esteem people. There's something attractive to us about uh, creating a, a celebrity culture around a person who we think is wise. Yet God is infinitely wiser than any person, and we have access to him. Now, none of these things can be said of other voices around us that we could listen to and, and be shaped by. Uh, one example is YouTubers. So plenty of YouTubers out there give decent advice about all sorts of things. Granted, there's plenty of rubbish out there as well, but I'm talking about the ones who you may feasibly want to let influence your life in some way. Uh, you know, some of them are on about health and fitness stuff or a particular sort of uh, approach to life like minimalism or they might be on about you know taking ownership in your life those sorts of things and sure listening to these voices might have a positive influence on your life to a degree um, I listen to some of them too but um, they, their, their wisdom and their knowledge uh, is limited they might have some wisdom if they're experienced in their field you might be somewhat confident that they're speaking some truth but their wisdom and knowledge pales in comparison to God's wisdom. And on top of that, none of them actually know you and love you personally like God does. Speaking of God's wisdom, 
uh, even the brightest minds in the planet, on the planet, are only scratching the surface of God's understanding. I thought about this recently uh, while reading a book that I just bought. I don't know how many people know this, but I am fascinated by theoretical physics. And to be clear, I'm an absolute novice on the subject, uh, but I love, you know, popular layman's level material on the subject. Um, and I recently started reading a book uh, by a physicist about the nature of time. And it's basically all about how the nature of time is still shrouded in mystery for physicists and that there are theories emerging now that uh, time essentially doesn't really exist outside of our perception. Um, it's really mind-blowing stuff. Um, and I was talking about this with my wife, Jess, uh, who basically, you know, timekeeping is not her forte, so she likes to say she lives in a world without time. So she, uh, she was like, oh, I was right all along. Uh, but yeah, I started reading this book and thought, these incredibly smart people who spend their entire lives dedicated to increasing their understanding of the cosmos and of the nature of things, even to them, the universe is full of mystery. But God created that universe, so to him, none of it is a mystery. He knows literally all things. So with all those other voices out there, um, I'm definitely not saying disregard everything they say. I'm not against influencers. I'm not anti-YouTube. I'm also definitely not anti-science. I love science. It's fascinating. Um, but I'm saying that any other voices we listen to ought to be subordinated to God's voice. They ought to be uh, underneath God's voice in terms of priority and influence in our lives. He is supremely worthy of being listened to because he speaks perfect truth. He loves you. He knows you and wants what's good for you, and he is perfectly wise. So having said that, how do we actually listen to God? God can and does speak to us in many different ways. Sometimes uh, he does it in overtly kind of supernatural looking ways, like prophecies or through dreams and visions. Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel spoke of the time that would come when God would pour out his spirit on all people, saying that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And we are in that time now because God's spirit has been poured out on us. That's what this Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, uh, is celebrating. That's what it's about. Um, but the primary, or I would say most common way in which God speaks to us is through his word, through scripture. As we read the Bible, uh, we are reading and being shaped by the very words of God. And we're getting to know God as he reveals himself. As we read scripture, uh, God's spirit works in us to further illuminate his word to us and uh, to make it real and alive in our hearts. So any of those other ways as well that I spoke about of, of hearing from God, of listening to God, uh, they should be tested against Scripture because God is not inconsistent and he has revealed uh, everything that we need to know about himself in his word. And that's why we want to also center everything that we do uh, in church, in our church services, on Scripture. We want, uh, when we preach, when we pray, when we sing songs, we want all of those things to be saturated with scriptural truth because we believe that it's good for us to hear 
uh, from God and be shaped by what he says to us so that we might know the true God. And if we're not doing that, then we do run a very real risk of uh, worshipping a God of our own imagination. A sign that that is happening might be if our services or our worship starts to become more about us and our purposes and what we want than it is about God and his purposes. So how does this actually work in practice, though, listening to God through Scripture? Uh, I remember a few times as a teenager, I found myself in a situation where I wanted guidance about something and I didn't know what to do. So I took the classic approach, I'm not sure if I'm alone in having ever done this, I don't think so, of randomly opening the Bible somewhere and putting my finger on the page and hoping I would find the answer there. Um, And inevitably it would always be some sort of obscure verse that didn't seem to relate at all to what I was Uh, what I was thinking or praying about. So I don't think that's how it normally works. Practically, I would say, uh, make it a priority in your life to read Scripture and to dwell on it often and let it sink into your mind. Fill your mind with Scripture so that when other voices come your way and try to tell you lies about yourself or lies about God, uh, you remember those words of truth. The Holy Spirit helps remind you of uh, the truth that you've filled your mind with by dwelling on scripture. And another practical piece of advice uh, in both your individual Bible reading and for how we approach the Bible as a church, uh, which is what we try to do, is that we want to not just cherry pick and focus on little bits and pieces of the Bible, but we want to kind of work through whole books and big chunks of the Bible so that we uh, really hear the full breadth of God's word to us, the full scope of what he has to say to us. So as well as uh, listening to God, we do, of course, also speak to God in our relationship with him. That's what verse 2 of this passage is all about, uh, which says, Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Again, we must remember that God's ways are far higher than our ways and his wisdom is far greater than our wisdom. So we would be wise to do a lot more listening to God than we do speaking when we commune with him. And of course, we know from the rest of scripture that we are not commanded to be totally silent before God, not at all. He wants us to speak to him as well. He wants us to pour our hearts out to him, to be open with him, But we are being encouraged here to speak in a way that acknowledges who he is and that acknowledges the weight of what we're doing when we come before him. So we want first and foremost to be shaped by him and what he's saying to us and to then speak to him from that place of knowing the truth that he's revealed about himself. There's a lot of wisdom in that approach because if our hearts are listening to God, then whatever we speak will already be shaped by his priorities. So what is it then that we are to avoid? The the passage talks at some point about the sacrifice of fools. Uh, What is that, the sacrifice of fools? Well, if drawing near to God to listen means uh, worshipping God with reverence and humility, then I think the sacrifice of fools is the opposite of that. It's worshipping God, but without 
reverence and without uh, a desire to humbly submit to him and listen to what he's saying to us. In other words, it is uh, worship without the heart of worship. It's more about uh, going through the motions and having an outward appearance of worship, perhaps, uh, than it is about actually communing with God and drawing near to him. And that heart behind uh, this kind of worship uh, is not to actually draw near to God and listen to him, but it's for some other purpose. Maybe it's to try and impress God or maybe, maybe even to manipulate God uh, or simply to look good in the eyes of people. You might be performing your faith uh, more than you're actually living it out from your heart. And maybe you're in a season where you're going through that. Maybe you're in a season where you feel like you're going through the motions in your walk with God, um, but your heart isn't really in it. Maybe COVID fatigue and church not being how it used to and and seeing far fewer people, uh, maybe that's just made you disengage a little bit in your your faith. And if that's you, uh, I want to encourage you to really seek him and to open your heart to him. Don't walk away, but I would say lean into God and ask him to help align your heart with your actions. Part of humbly listening is redirecting your heart towards God uh, when it has started to point in some other direction. Now, verses 3 to 6 take us a little deeper into what it looks like when we worship in that foolish way. It gives us some more examples of the sacrifice of fools. Verse 3 says, For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. And the word dreams here is talking about uh, those ambitions and goals that we busy ourselves with. It's sometimes interpreted as daydreams. Uh, And busying ourselves with these daydreams leads to lots of cares and worries. This is talking about uh, having a busy mind which is trying with all its might to control the chaos of life uh, but is actually unable to because as we've been hearing in the last few weeks, uh, life on this earth is hevel. It's a vapor. It's a chasing after the wind that we can't make sense of. Um, So the foolish approach is to uh, seek to control all of life and to achieve dreams by busying yourself and stressing over things. And in doing so, you may even be using God as a means to um, achieve your vision of how your life should be. And you may be asking God for things which in the end serve uh, self-centered goals and ambitions. But as Dan and Soph said to us a couple of weeks ago, uh, the wise approach that aligns with reality is humbly accepting that we can't control all of life and that uh, actually it's, it's God who's in control and accepting and resting in the fact that God is in control. Another example of the sacrifice of fools uh, relates to making vows to God. Four to six, verses four to six say, uh, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So this verse is saying, do what you say you will do. God is not to be messed around with. Uh, If you vow to him to do something, make sure you actually do it, or or otherwise don't make vows to him at all. 
I wonder if this is uh, something that you ever do. Do you ever sort of try to barter with God? Sometimes we try to make deals with God and then sort of hold him to his end of the deal. And we feel like if we've done a particular thing that, that God owes us one. But we need to recognize that uh, if God is to be approached with reverence and humility, that uh, we should absolutely not make deals with him carelessly. And Jesus takes this a step further in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In Matthew 5, he says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And then a little later in the passage, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus is saying here, don't make vows to God at all, but simply be a person who fulfills your word. And ultimately, it goes even further than that because we know in our heart of hearts that we aren't good at keeping our word to God. We are all, all of us, at the end of the day, promise-breaking sinners who come to our promise-keeping God and who gives us undeserved mercy and grace. The preacher in Ecclesiastes concludes uh, this little section with verse 7 with a, a powerful summary. He says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And that is the thread running through this entire passage, having a right fear of God. I said at the beginning uh, that this passage would help us answer the question, how do we approach God? Or what might be the right way to come to one who is so worthy of worship? And the answer that we find here is that we should approach with humble, reverent fear. And now that word fear might be confusing to you. Um, You know, you might be thinking, why should we be Afraid of God? Isn't God good? And I think in our everyday speech, we use the word fear negatively a lot of the time. But fear in the Bible, uh, fear of God is framed positively. Uh, and it, it, it actually doesn't contradict the fact that God is good. It is a good and a right response to a God who is so supremely powerful and mighty. To know who God truly is means that you will fear him. This is, this is a fear which, as we've learned from Ecclesiastes today, that recognizes God's power and wisdom. And in doing so, it draws near to humbly listen. It's slow to speak because it wants to first be shaped by God before speaking back to him. And it doesn't want to treat God flippantly uh, by using him for its own pursuits or to make deals with him. That kind of fear... That right fear of God is the answer to all of this vanity, actually. The only truly wise response in a world which refuses to make sense uh, is to live with this good and right fear of God. And when we truly approach God with a humble heart that wants to draw near and wants to listen to his word, we hear the most wonderful truth, which is that we can now draw near with full assurance of our standing before God because of Jesus. Hebrews 10 says that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we can now draw near to God in the fullest sense of the word. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. He's taken up residence in our hearts by his spirit, that great truth of Pentecost. And he has completely removed the barrier of sin. Throughout this whole passage, we've uh, felt that tension between reverence for God and intimacy with him, which I spoke about at the beginning. But that is the beauty of being invited into relationship with the God of the universe. We are now one with Christ, and so we can draw near to God and listen to him and be shaped by him in the most close and personal way imaginable. Let me pray, and then uh, the band will come and lead us in a couple more songs. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the words of Ecclesiastes, which show us again that you are one who is to be revered. Your ways are higher than our ways. You are in heaven and we are on earth. Yet at the same time, you call us near to yourself. You bring us near through Jesus and enable us to live with you and be shaped by you in the most close and personal way imaginable. Thank you, God, for this great truth. I pray that you would uh, remind us of it day in, day out. Um, thank you so much for who you are. We praise you uh, for Jesus and thank you uh, for all that you've done in him. Amen.